Father, we do come and we bring nothing in our hands to earn your favor. We come eager to receive all that you have for us in your word. Take your word now. Apply it to our hearts through your spirit. Give us eyes to see and to savor, to behold the risen Lord Christ. Do this for the glory of your name and the eternal gladness of our souls. Pull us toward heaven this morning, we pray. Amen. I invite you to be seated. And the little ones can meet their teachers in the back. And as they go, three quick announcements for you. Uh, first, we continue our T2 forums on Sunday mornings next month. We'll be talking about biblical counseling. And so if you're a Christian, I think you should be a counselor. And so uh, you should come and learn how to uh, continue to do that. Uh, second, next Sunday after church is our next membership introduction. Several of you have signed up for that. But if you are thinking about the things of Christ and church, I invite you to come and learn about what we believe, why we believe it, and why we do church membership. So that's next Sunday, 1 p.m. You can sign up on our app, turn in the card here. Last but not least, for sure, is the women's retreat. So the information is there. You need to sign up by March the 9th. Uh, again, if you have questions, find another gal and ask her, and she should be able to tell you something. If not, you can find Catherine, and she'll tell you. So. But now we turn our attention to God's Word. And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Judges chapter 3. So we continue our sermon series of the book of Judges this morning. And I'm going to start us with a quote. Quote, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will, never, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. These are default settings. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self, end quote. These words may sound like they come from a commentary on the Bible, perhaps even the book of Judges, but they don't. They're words from a 2005 commencement speech given by the late David Foster Wallace. And what's, what's interesting, as far as I can tell, Wallace was not a Christian. Yet he understands supremacy of self, worshiping what we want, doesn't turn out well. And I think deep down inside of us, we all know this. But there's also a tension in our souls, isn't there? Because there's something else inside of us that says, no, 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 no. Happiness comes from being my own judge and king. And so we have this desire for happiness, and it's a good desire. But we don't always know where to find it. And so we're left with this tension, and how do we resolve this tension? Well... I submit to you the book of Judges. Yes, the book of Judges tells us. 
True happiness comes not in being judge and king, but in belonging to the one true judge and king. True happiness comes not in the supremacy of self, but the supremacy of Christ. So worship anything or anyone else leads to disappointment and destruction, but God in His kindness brings deliverance and delight to all who cry out to Him. It's exactly what we see in Judges 3, which is our text for this morning. So let's, let me catch us up briefly where we are in the story. So back in Genesis, God made a promise to a guy named Abraham. And he said, God's people would dwell in God's place and joy in God's rule and blessing. Abraham dies through a series of events. He brings up a guy named Moses. Well, Moses does some good work, but Moses dies before they get into the promised land. Well, then we met Joshua. And Joshua begins to lead the charge and they make some good work. But Joshua dies. And things start to go off the rails. Israel rejects God's goodness and his word and says, no, we're going to give into our own passions and desires. And as we studied Judges 2 last week, this leads Israel into a disastrous downward cycle. Disobedience leads to destruction, which then causes Israel to cry out in distress, and God in his tender mercy delivers them. And the cycle repeats. So from Judges chapter 3 to Judges chapter 16, you have seven distinct cycles. Hundreds of years of rebellion and restoration and rebellion. And overall, God raises up 12 judges to deliver his people. And let's be clear, these judges are not perfect heroes. You will see as we walk through even the judges, their character and their faith deteriorates as well. Imperfect people used by God to deliver his people, but then there's a problem. They die. So with each dead judge, we're left looking for another judge. Maybe a judge who doesn't die. We're left looking for a judge, maybe who who doesn't die, but maybe a judge who puts a death to death altogether. Wouldn't that be good news? If we had that type of judge and king. Wouldn't that be a better story worth living in and living for? Feel the tension. Let the raw, exposed accounts of this story tug at the strings of your heart that yearn for a better story. Judges is a dark, cautionary tale about the supremacy of self. You're supposed to feel the messiness, and we'll even see this morning, the gruesomeness. But like a diamond shining against a black piece of cloth, the backdrop of judges causes the tender compassion of God, the gracious, generous, steadfast, covenant love of God who will not give up on His people to shine with all the more brilliance and beauty. And this morning, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31, is where we'll spend our time, and we meet the first three judges. The main idea of this chapter is essentially the main idea of the entire book. Disobedience always leads to destruction, yet God's mercy brings deliverance. And we'll see God often uses the weak and the unlikely to bring deliverance to his people. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to have that one main idea in mind, walk through the text, and then I want to suggest four ways to respond. All right? One main idea. 
Disobedience always leads to destruction. Yet God's mercy brings deliverance. Four ways to respond. Remember, repent, rejoice, and rest. That's what we're going to do. With that, let's jump in. Look there in your Bibles. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. But therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. So here we see the beginning of this cycle. They disobey, and it leads into destruction. And why did they disobey? What does the text tell us? They forgot the Lord. Their failure to obey comes from a failure to remember. And notice, it's not that they stop worshiping altogether. No. Their worship simply changes directions. Disobedience is not the absence of worship, but the change in direction of worship. We're always worshiping. So the question is not, are you worshiping, but what or who are you worshiping? And the Israelites, instead of enjoying and trusting and treasuring the Lord who had brought them out of slavery, they now bow to the gods around them for satisfaction. And as our friend Wallace pointed out, worshiping the gods of the day only leads to pain and misery. But even this, Pain and misery is a kind gift from a gracious God. It is. Notice what the text says. The anger of the Lord was kindled. And who sold them? He sold them. But, Joey, isn't this the same God who says is slow to anger and compassionate? The God who shows mercy to generation after generation? What's up with that? What is that God? But we have to remember God's anger is not a contradiction of his love, but an expression of his love. See, God's anger is rooted in Israel, is rooted in his deep and lasting commitment to his people's good. See, love and exclusivity necessarily go together. God cannot and will not sit idly by as his people turn to other lovers. Why? Well, because he's, he knows these other lovers, these idols, these false gods, cannot satisfy the people. And, perhaps even more important, they don't deserve the worship. God is a God after his own glory, because his glory is what satisfies his people. God's glory and our joy don't compete, but fuel each other. And God alone is worthy to be worshipped, And God alone can truly satisfy. So in kindness, in graciousness, in tender compassion, He kindly gives them over so they might experience the pain of their sin and come back to Him. This made me think of an article that I read in the New York Times a while ago. The title of the article is The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. Maybe some of you have read this, but it tells the story of a girl named Ashlyn. Ashlyn has a genetic disorder that literally prevents her from feeling pain. So when she was two years old, her mom had to literally bound her hands up because she would chew them and bite the flesh off her hands. 
When she was a little bit older, her dad was outside pressure washing the house. Ashlyn gets out, and what does she do? Dad turns around, and she's over at the pressure washer, hands resting on the engine, flesh just being singed off, and she has no idea. The article says, her life story offers an amazing snapshot of how complicated a life can get without the guidance of pain. Pain is a gift, and she doesn't have it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Restoration Church, when you feel the pain of your sin, it's a kind gift from a good God. Even this is a kind gift. We may not like it. The hurt, the hardship, the misery, the mess. But it's a gift from God to draw us back to Him that we would not be easily satisfied with that which truly doesn't please. If you're here this morning, maybe you take the name of Christ or maybe you're not a Christian altogether and you don't feel any pain, misery, sadness, remorse, over your sin, can I plead with you to not confuse this as a blessing of God? The absence of pain of our sin is not a blessing, but judgment. If you want to know more about that, go read Romans 1 this afternoon. But here in our passage, God gives the Israelites over to the life they want. They want to worship Baal and Asheroth, So he gives them over. But then he shows them how empty and painful it is. That name, who they come under slavery, Cushon Rishathaim, literally means double evil. So sin promised good. They got the sin, but they didn't get good. They got double evil. Eventually the pain sets in. The sweet chocolate eventually dissolves off the sin, the hook of sin, and all that's left is the pain. It may look enjoyable for a time. The Israelites served Cushon Rishathaim for eight years. There's part of me that has to think those early years were probably glorious. They probably thought it was great. The convenience of worshiping who they wanted, how they wanted, and where they wanted. The joy of being liked by their non-believing neighbors. The comfort of not having to wrestle with their own wayward desires. Right? There was some joy in that. And let's be honest. There's a level of happiness that comes in our rebellion. If there wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But disobedience always brings what? Destruction. Yet, God's mercy brings deliverance for those who cry out. Look down at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushon Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the the Israelites cry out to who? To the Lord. If you have a Bible, that that name is probably capitalized. Why? Because this is the personal covenant name of God. They don't cry out to a generic little G God. 
they cry out to the God who has revealed himself and delivered them. And so we need to be careful not to reduce this passage down to platitudes of crying out to your version of God whenever you get in trouble so that you might be delivered. No, this passage is about the Lord, the covenant God. And this is the same God who has revealed himself to us through the person and work of Christ, the new covenant of the person and work of Christ. This is how we know this God. And so this is the one we too must cry out to. So the Lord hears their cry and delivers them. And how does he do it? By raising up Othniel. Now, if you remember, or if you read Judges 1 and 2 this week, you'll remember, we've already met this guy back in chapter 1. Remember him? Caleb made a promise that whoever takes the city of Debir, he would give his daughter over. And Othniel's like, I like the daughter, I'm in. He goes and fights, and so he's the guy that gets the girl. Othniel is. He's the obedient picture-perfect, popular boy who comes from a good family, right? So he, he marries another believer, Anklet, Aksa, whereas the other Israelites are marrying non-believers. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's good heritage. You know what his name means? Lion of God. That's, that's prestigious, man. He's got, I mean, he's got it all going for him. And so if anybody can deliver God's people from double evil, surely it must be this guy, right? But here's my question. I was reading the text. If Othniel is so awesome, why did it take eight years for him to do anything? Well, here's why. Because as impressive and good as Othniel is, that's not enough to deliver God's people. Othniel is not the hero. The Lord is. Did you pay attention as we read this text? Notice all the things the Lord does. The Lord sold them, verse 8. The people cried out to who? The Lord, verse 9. Who raised up to deliver? The Lord raised up to deliver, verse 8. How was Othniel empowered and equipped? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, verse 10. Who ensured the victory? The Lord gave the victory, verse 10. The only thing the Israelites contribute is a cry for mercy. But like a tender father who hears the slightest squeal of a child, God hears their cry. And he comes running to them. God is the one running the show. He is in control. And he loves his people. Do you see that? Is this your understanding of God? Not just that he is all-powerful, but he's compassionate. Because if all we have is an all-powerful God, that's not very good news. But if we have a God who is all-powerful and personally compassionate, not just mighty, but merciful, that's good news. And despite Israel's disobedience, the Lord brings deliverance. Despite their sin, the Lord provides salvation. Who is this God? He's the God of steadfast covenant Love, generous grace and mercy. Patient love. Who will not abandon his people and nothing can thwart his plans. That's who this God is. Yes, this God brings rest for weary children. And this God 
This covenant Lord is the same God who says today, will you come to me? Will you cry out to me for mercy? Yes, the backdrop is dark, but it makes the beauty and the brilliance of the Lord and the compounding mercy of God shine all the more brightly, doesn't it? See, he gives his people what they truly needed despite what they might have wanted. He gives his people what they truly needed in spite of what they might have wanted. And this brings hope and healing and rest. So surely now that God has done this, they will rejoice in the Lord and remember his ways and live happily ever after. Verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho, by the way. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. The spiritual amnesia of the Israelites flare up again. And notice the repetition. Verse 12 is exactly the same as verse 7, except for one word. Again. Again. Disobedience leads to destruction. Where there was once peace and rest for an entire generation, now all the surrounding enemies are coming after Israel. And this time they're ensnared in sin for 18 years. That's longer than some of you have been alive. It's a long time. That's enough time to experience the effects of sin because of their personal rebellion and experience the devastating effects of being taken advantage of. I'm not saying the two are always related. But I am saying this shows us the mess of the brokenness of the world in which we live in and how sin personally and corporately brings slavery to our souls. Perhaps the Israelites didn't cry out sooner because of shame and guilt. Perhaps they didn't cry out sooner because they thought the Lord didn't care or wouldn't hear. Perhaps they didn't cry out sooner because they were trying to deliver themselves out of the mess they had gotten themselves into. Maybe that's you this morning. You're afraid to call out to God because of guilt of your sin? Or maybe you're afraid to call out because of the shame of all the sin, the devastating effects of sin done to you over years. Maybe you want to cry out to God in the midst of your misery, but don't think he really cares. He's written you off because of what you've done. Or because of what's been done to you, he can't care if that's happened. Or maybe there's a struggle that you've just had for years. Maybe 18 years. And you just think, I just need to work a little bit harder before I cry out to God. Will you cry out today? for the mercy of the Lord. You don't have to wait. Maybe for some of you, that's the first time this morning you came in here, you were not trusting in the Lord, and you're like, I need mercy. And I say, yes, cry out to 
the Lord. Maybe it's for the hundredth time, the thousandth time. To be clear, I am not saying the promise of God is not. If you cry out, your circumstances will get immediately better. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the Lord will give you himself, and that's enough to endure whatever you might have. And he'll put people around you to care for you. The Lord has compassion to all who come in. Here's the amazing thing. The only prerequisite for grace is knowing how desperately you need it and crying out to the one who can give it. That's the only prerequisite. The only prerequisite for grace is knowing how desperately you need it and crying out to the one who can give it. And that's what the Israelites did. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So there we have, the, notice the repetition again. They, people cry out and the Lord raises up a deliverer, compounding mercy. And who does he raise up this time? Ehud. Well, the text tells us a couple things about this guy. We know he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not from the tribe of Judah, the, the promised tribe. Benjamin, it's the youngest tribe. Not a very good position, enviable. And you know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. Ehud's left-handed. Or as the Hebrew literally says, unable to use his right hand. So here we have a dude from the youngest tribe, son of my right hand, who can't use his right hand. And what's he doing? He's the one they're sending to take tribute. He's a delivery boy. He's low man on the totem pole. Are you, God, you're going to raise up this guy? Really? Out of all the people in Israel, you pick the dude who can't use his right hand from the tribe of son of my right hand, who is weak, disabled, from the youngest tribe, and he is low man on the totem pole. Completely opposite of Othniel. Completely opposite. How would God use this guy? This weak man. Verse 16. We're going to read from 16 all the way down to 30. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, that's about 18 inches, in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone out, the servants came. And when the servants saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited Till they were embarrassed. 
But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Yep, that's in the Bible. If anybody says the Bible is boring, just tell them to go read Judges 3. What are we supposed to do with this? Do we really need to know the details about Eglon's weight and his dung? Seriously. What do we do this? Well, I think the details remind us, first, this is not some made-up story. This is real people and real events. And God gives us the details to slow us down and make us pay attention to what's happening. We were talking about this this week in, in the community group that I'm a part of. And they asked, like, why the details? And I, I said, well, I think one of the things that we're in danger of is sanitizing the Bible and salvation. And so, why is it stories like this give us pause, yet we can read about the crucifixion of the Lord over morning breakfast and go about our day? It's details like this that I think God wants us to slow down, realize, and remember that deliverance from sin is always costly and it's always messy. And God's ways are not our ways. He is providentially working all things together for his people's good. So let's think about what's happening in this story. You have God's people, they've been in slavery for 18 years to Eglon. And notice what they're doing. They're bringing Eglon a tribute. Well, I don't think it's because they love this guy. I think it's because Eglon forces them to bring gifts. A tribute is what would have been food and animals. It's kind of a, a tax, a, a force of oppression upon them. And so we don't know how often Eglon required these, but we know it was enough for him to get fat. That's why that detail is there. Being fat is a sign of material wealth. And what the author is saying is, Eglon is feasting upon God's people. He is fat and feasting while they are famished and enslaved. Israel's disobedience had not led them to freedom, but into affliction under a king very unlike the Lord. Disobedience leads to destruction. Yet they cry out, and God's mercy brings deliverance. So God raises up Ehud. Providentially, Ehud is handicapped in his right arm. He's an unlikely warrior, isn't he? Unsuspecting enemy of Eglon. Really, what can a weak man do to a mighty and fat king? Ehud knows what to do. He's going to make a custom sword that fits discreetly on his right thigh because the king's bodyguards are never going to check there because all AB bottle warriors are right-handed and keep their sword on their left side. Ehud is packing heat and nobody knows it. And they roll up in their chariots 
People hop out. They go in, unsuspecting Ehud, withered arm. They give the gift and they leave. But Ehud says, I'm going back. Tells Eglon, I have a message for you. Eglon, perhaps of pride or stupidity or both, tells all of his, you know, what can this weak guy do to me? Y'all, bodyguards, go. So you have weak underdogs standing before a gluttonous, powerful king. They're outside on the roof. There's no AC in these days, so that's where the the, the kings would go to, to chill. And so Eglon is literally chilling outside. It's so fancy, palace so big that he has an adjacent bathroom on his roof. I have a message for you. You picture Eglon kind of struggling to get up. He's so fat, get up out of his chair. And as he stands up, Ehud, the weak, disabled man, draws the sword, sticks it in, leaves it, and escapes. Locks the door, goes. Well, the king's servants show up. The door's locked, but they smell something. Ah, the king's just using the bathroom. God is providence even over smells. So they wait. Seriously, they wait. Why? So Ehud can get away. And they wait, and they wait. Finally, like, all right, something's wrong. They open the door, only to find the king who ruled with pride and power was put to open shame. And Eglon is skipping away. Notice he skips past the idols on the way back because they can't do anything. He blows the trumpet. The fight is already won. Let's go to battle and win this thing. God using one unlikely man to single-handedly deliver his people and bring judgment to his enemy. And they have rest for 80 years. Poetic, providential justice. No detail in the Bible is there for no reason. It's providence. And this poetic providential justice, I think, is meant to encourage the Israelites. It's meant to encourage us. One of the things it tells us is God will bring delivery to his people. Nothing escapes his providential plans and purposes. In a world filled with brokenness and injustice, we have to remember that God will right every wrong. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will judge all those who oppose him. And he will deliver all those who cry out. And he often uses unlikely people and unlikely means to do it. We see the same thing, verse 31, Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Period. We don't know a lot about this guy. I know some of you love his name. Shamgar. We know he has an ox goad. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a stick with a point on it to goad animals. That's all we know about this guy. So if he has a stick to goad animals, I'm assuming he's some type of shepherd. So here you have a shepherd using a stick to deliver God's people. That's all we know about the guy. Unlikely man, shepherd, unlikely method, a stick, period. So surely now God's people will get it. And they'll remember the Lord and rejoice in His ways and they'll live happily ever after. Story over. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. The judge dies. Chaos and rebellion quickly follow. The cycle repeats yet again. If we're honest, some of us feel like we're in a cycle. We're in this cycle. We thought our sin would give us what it want, but it didn't. We look for a deliverer, a person, a job, drugs, alcohol, a sexual relationship, our health, our savings account, our academic achievements. And it provides rest for a time, eventually to let us down. We change the direction of our worship to the bales and astroth of our day. But it doesn't satisfy, it only enslaves. So what do we do? Well, we remember, we repent, rejoice, and rest. Remember, Israel's failure to obey comes from a failure to remember who God is and what he's done. We're not unlike the Israelites. We too suffer from spiritual amnesia. We need to actively remember God's mercy and grace shown to us. How the guys in my community group are memorizing Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I shouldn't make them do it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And what? Cal, what? Forget not all his benefits. So one of the most important things on the mind of the psalmist is not forgetting the Lord. That's amazing to me. The psalmist knows we're quick to forget. And so we have to remember. And, and I know we say it over and over and over again, but remembering who the Lord is and what He's done starts with meditating on His Word. It's what He wants us to know about Him. If we don't take time to meditate on what He thinks is important, we're not going to understand who He is. I also encourage you to keep a journal of some sorts. Whatever that looks like. But then go back and read it on occasion. We do this in our home. We have a thank you board. And we just like, whatever I'm thankful for, we'll just write it down. And on occasion, we'll come back and read it. It's so encouraging to remember. Also, actively remember by living in gospel community. See, the one thing the Israelites weren't doing is inviting people to correct them. Invite brothers and sisters around you to correct you, to exhort you, to remind you of the deceitfulness of sin and the greater joys found in Christ. Invite that into your life. Actively ask other church members how they came to faith in Jesus and just marvel at the ways God works. How his providence is just mapped onto the lives of your brothers and sisters. And remember God's goodness. So this week, will you take time to think about how you can actively remember, to evaluate the rhythm of your life, to remember God's work in your life and in the lives of others. Other church members, other churches, And just remember, God is at work. Don't forget, a failure to obey results from a failure to remember. This text is calling us to remember. But not just that, but also to repent. Often when we read the Bible, we automatically place ourselves as the hero, don't we? I am Othniel. I am Ehud. I am Shamgar. As we'll see, there's, there's a place for that sometimes. But it's not the first place. We're not the hero. We're in the ones of need of a hero. 
We need to humbly admit that we too have gone astray. So don't read Judges 3 and be like, why is Israel so stupid? Why would they do that? Rather, we should read Judges 3 and say, why is Israel so stupid? Why am I so much like them? Right? So before we can receive the Lord's mercy and grace, we need to admit our rebellion against Him, and we need to repent. We need to confess our sins. We need to confess our rebellion and turn to the covenant Lord. Apart from that, there is judgment. That's bad news. But there's good news. Remember, the only prerequisite for grace is knowing how desperately you need it and looking to the one who can give it. We don't have to clean ourselves up before coming to the Lord. We don't have to try to pay our sin off before coming to the Lord. In fact, you can't do that. If you could pay your sin off or if you could clean yourself up, then Jesus would have had no reason to come and pay the price for sin on the cross. It would have been a waste. So God is inviting you. Will you cry out to me this morning? And if you do, you don't have to worry if he's going to raise up a deliverer. We have an empty tomb. The judge has been raised up forevermore. We remember. We repent and we rejoice. We rejoice that God uses the weak and unlikely to advance his purposes. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar are not the heroes. The Lord is the hero, and the Lord can use anybody. Some of us have a good pedigree like Othniel. Don't worry, God can use you in spite of yourself. But most of us, we're honest, we're more like Ehud and Shamgar. We're weak. We feel like all we have is an ox goad. Like, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? But God loves to use weak people and an unlikely method of the gospel for the advancement of his purposes. Why? Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Is that an ox goat? Mm-hmm. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world what to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Nobody struts into heaven. Embrace your weakness. That's where God's power is made strong. Embrace the foolishness of the gospel. Your weakness should not give you pause in attempting things for God. It should propel you all the more. Because it reminds you of your salvation and it gives room for God to show up. Don't let your weaknesses tell you, like, oh, I can't disciple that person. All I got is the gospel in us. I'm just weak. I can't, I can't go share the gospel with my neighbor, my classmate, because I'm weak. And I, I mean, all I know is life, death, burial, resurrection, Jesus, all I got. No. God uses weak people in an unlikely message to bring glory to his name. Rejoice in that, church. Rejoice in that and get to work. But Judges 3 must lead us to do more than to rejoice how God uses us. Judges 3 must lead us to worship the God who delivers us. We rejoice. We rejoice that there is a greater judge. The people here disobey and the judges fail to truly deliver. You know what? If you keep reading the Old Testament, what does God do? He raises up kings. They work? Nope. Raises up prophets. They work? Nope. The people fail. The judges fail. The kings fail. The prophets fail. The priests fail. And it's like, God, would you just come do this for us? 
Would you just become a man and do what we can't do? Yeah, I will. Jesus Christ. He is truly God, truly man, who is the obedient people and the perfect prophet, priest, king, and judge. Rejoice that there is a judge who doesn't die. The judges here are a shadow that point to the substance of the greater, better judge, Jesus Christ. Othniel, what's his name mean? Lion of God. What tribe is he from? The tribe of Judah. Whose spirit is upon him? The spirit of the Lord. What does he do? Delivers God's people. Who does that sound like? Jesus, the Lion of God, from the tribe of Judah, whose spirit rested upon him, who came, lived, and died, and rose again to deliver God's people from sin, Satan, and death forevermore. Amen? How about Ehud? Yeah, his character's flawed. Jesus is perfect. This guy's not. But he's a weak, disabled man who single-handedly puts God's enemy to open shame and escapes certain death and says, follow me. Is this not Jesus Christ? On the cross, he looks weak and disabled, and Satan thought he was getting a tribute, and Jesus says, I have a message for you from God. It is finished. He escapes certain death by coming out of the tomb turns around to God's people and says, follow me, for God has given your enemy into my hand. How about Shamgar? Not much to work with. (laughs) But he is a shepherd who uses a stick to deliver God's people. Jesus is a shepherd who doesn't use a stick to deliver God's people and kill, but be killed upon a stick for his people. Judges 3 should lead us to rejoice in Jesus, the judge who never dies. Jesus, the greater judge who was crucified on the cross and rose again the third day, putting death to death so that there is a forever rest. Amen? So we rejoice and we rest. And our rest is not just 40 or 80 years. Our rest continues as long as our judge lives. And our judge lives forever. The rest in Judges 3 is a preview of what is to come. Remember how I started. God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. That's what they had for 40 years. That's what they had for 80 years. Those were a preview of what God was doing. God has set out to have his people in his place enjoying his rule and blessing and all of it is made possible by his eternal son. And so we rest. The work is done. And we look forward to the rest that is to come. See, all of us here, you came here this morning. I know why you came. Because in some way, you are on a quest for joy and happiness and pleasure and rest. I have two little girls, and so we watch a lot of fairy tales in our house. They're captivating. They even suck me in. For some of you are sucked into the Marvel movies right now. Why? It's the narrative that we want. It's the better story that we yearn for. These stories tap into that greater story of happily ever after. They tug at our soul for what we truly desire, happiness and rest. And Judges 3 does the same thing. It makes us yearn for that better story, that better place. The place where our souls find complete and utter rest. That's what the greater judge, Jesus Christ, gives all those who trust in him alone. So we have previews now, but the greater rest will 
come when Jesus returns. Heaven on earth as it was always meant to be. So will you cry out this morning to the one who delivers? Disobedience always leads to destruction. Yet God's mercy delivers those who cry out. Why? Because we have a better judge. One who never died. Let's pray. God, we marvel at your word. Would you give us the grace to remember? Would you give us the grace to repent and to rejoice? I pray for those here this morning whose souls are weary. Would you give them rest, God, in Christ? I pray for the wayward. In your kindness, would you let us feel the effects of our sin that we might come back to you? Give us these graces, Lord. We thank you for, we thank you for Judges 3 and what it tells us about who you are and what you've done and what you will do. We pray all these in the one name that's worthy before your throne, the one judge who never died, who lives forever, our greater judge, the better judge, Jesus Christ. Amen.